the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Yankee Doodle went to town riding on his bicycle-powered spaceship. Proof positive that history isn't over yet, or even really history. Plus the latest entry in our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. We have a really in-depth and illuminating interview with David Drake and John Lambshead this time. They discuss their new novel, Into the Maelstrom, which is the second entry in the Citizen Science Fiction series. It's also a fairly long interview, so we'll get right to that. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic is Read by Bronson Pinchot. Now here's the news. To celebrate the release of Into the Maelstrom by David Drake and John Lambshead, we have a cool March contest that is still open at the main Bain website, bain.com. Into the Maelstrom, book two in the Citizen series, is modeled around the events of the American Revolutionary War. We'll hear a lot more about that shortly in the interview. We're offering up a copy of the book signed by authors David Drake and John Lambshead. For your chance to win this, tell us what historical period or event you think would make for the best science fiction story and why sort of an analog science fiction story based on that historical event or period. We've already got some really fascinating entries on this contest, and we want yours, too. You can find out all the details by going to Bain.com the website and looking right there on the left hand side you may need to scroll down a little bit and that's where the contest listing is always to be found go there and get the details and send us your entry I want to welcome david drake and john lambshead to the podcast hello guys hi hi tony david drake is the archetype what were you going to say? <laughs> no, I, it, I, I was going to, to tell the audience that this voice is Dave Drake and the other British-sounding voice is John Lambset. Um, is, that, is that true, John? Oh, yeah. Hello. <laughs> there we go. Now we have both samples. <laughs> uh, let me introduce you. David Drake is the archetype. We used to say something even even more laudatory, but Dave nixed it. Uh, Bain writer. Along with Jim Bain, of course, Dave defined much of the tenor of what we do here at Bain Books. Dave is a graduate of Duke Law School. He's a Vietnam vet. Um, he also reads Latin for pleasure. Uh, he's the creator of numerous novels and series, including the best-selling Hammer Slammers military science fiction series, more and more recently, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy series, including latest entry, The Sea Without a Shore. He's also the co-author on a host of series, ranging from the Belisarius novels with Eric Flint to the General series with S.M. Sterling, Eric Flint, and yours truly, Tony Daniel. To our point here, Dave is the co-author of the Citizen series of science fiction novels with John Lambshead. John is a retired research scientist from the British Museum of Natural History, 
For Bane, he is the author of Swashbuckling Fantasy Lucy's Blade and Contemporary Fantasy Wolf in Shadow, a book I really liked. He is the co-author of the Citizen series with David Drake, which so far includes Into the Hinterlands and the latest entry, Into the Maelstrom. David, you are known for sometimes using historical events from ancient times, classical times, and just about any time as the seed for a science fiction story. Why the American Revolution era for the Citizen series? Uh, because Jim Bain, who was one of my closest friends, as well as a publisher, uh, was really hipped on how important, how wonderful uh, George Washington was. And he asked me to do it. And, well, I got into it, and I... I learned that he was absolutely <laughs> Jim's enthusiasms were not always, you know, exactly as good as he thought they were, but it was in this case. Uh, but the reason that we did, that I did, uh, George Washington is quite simply because Jim really wanted it, and uh, I wanted to please Jim. Yeah. So I did the plot outline. Well, I mean, George Washington, I have written a novel about George Washington. He's action hero material when he was younger. It, most people don't know about those younger days. Um, this was the stuff of uh, Into the Hinterlands, right? Through the backwoods with a friend or two and more or less friendly Indians, you know, <laughs> who might disappear at any moment. Uh, yeah, it. Uh, this is not the fellow with badly fitting teeth whom Gilbert Stewart painted. Although he became that also. Yeah. But yeah. So we're on the way to to the George Washington on the dollar bill, perhaps. With uh, <laughs> this is not, of course, about the American Revolution into the maelstrom. Um, so, John, you were not involved at the start on conceiving the series. How did you come to write the series with David? Well, uh, I understand um, originally Eric Flint was going to write it, um, and it was David planned it out quite some time ago. Um, but it just came out of the blue for me. Would I like to be involved? And uh, it seemed a fascinating project. And when I looked up the life of George Washington, I, <laughs> he is a fascinating character, you know. Um and uh, we just took it from there, and I, I got Dave's plan and started writing. And we did a bit of toing and froing until I was um, got myself into the sort of zone that Dave wanted, and then I carried on. And now we're in the second volume. <laughs> what one of the real problems for John initially was I had written a plot outline for Eric Flint because Eric had really, really wanted to do it. I'd written it for him. So there was stuff in the first outline that I didn't bother to explain because Eric knew it already. But it hit John just cold and because he's the extremely determined person he is, he was trying to solve stuff without any background. When, you know, it, it wasn't particularly tricky, but neither was it intuitively obvious. Think of it as, as using your iPod. 
uh, if you know what you're doing, it's no problem. But if you don't, Apple is just impenetrable. So I, I wrote what was an impenetrable outline for John. I didn't write it for John, but I didn't help him because it didn't occur to me that, oops, no. You know, I, I wrote the outline at least 10 years back uh, before John started working on it. And um, I I just didn't do my job. I, I should have looked it over and revised it slightly to, to add stage directions, in effect, for John. So it, uh, it it started out as one project, but it really did become a, a Drake Lambshead project. Oh, hell yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's funny, actually. It's something Dave has said, and it, occurred to me independently, if if you read The Hinterland, it doesn't read like a Drake novel or a Lambshead novel. It's um, some synergistic composite. <laughs> it took on a life of its own, really. Uh, there's another aspect that I think is worth pointing out. Uh, I'd, my background is history and Latin, and I've got a, a law degree. Uh, none, yes, I read science fiction. I've written a lot of science fiction, but I am not in any sense a scientist. Yeah, unlike, say, Joe Haldeman, who has a, you know, his first degree was a, a Bachelor of Science. Uh, so to me, this is the first time I've written a book or been involved in the writing of a book that is, honest to God, hard science. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Um, <laughs> I, I don't think we actually set out to do that. It's just that I'm a career scientist. I've, um, and I, I wasn't a teaching academic. I was a purely research academic at the British Museum. And uh, I, I guess my head is stuffed with this sort of thing. It's just the way my mind works. Now, you're a John, you're a biologist, well, right, John? Yeah, yeah. Um, my background, I did my first degree in biology and biochemistry, and that was before molecular biology existed. And then I did my um, doctorates in mathematical ecology. And I went to a universe, an engineering university, actually, in, in London. Um, so they, they, they had a few scientists there, but they were primarily engineering. So when I graduated, I was one of the few biologists from the 70s who could program a computer, for example. And uh, I, I got taken on by the British Museum because I had a very different background to the traditional biologists they use. And I, I basically, I suppose, wrote the digital revolution. My function with the research teams I worked with was often bridging the gap between mathematics and biology. Uh, and let me say, because John certainly won't say it, that he is a genuinely world-class scientist. He is the person who, if you wanted to know something about marine nematodes, uh, you would go to. It, it is really that simple. And marine nematodes also are probably the handiest view of the health of the ocean, mm -hmm. which is why the UN and uh, the Royal Academy and this sort of thing were sending him to international conferences quite a lot. So 
don't mistake what he's saying. Yes, he he was a research scientist, but he was a research scientist uh, the way that Feynman was a research physicist. Well, that's cool. Um, did um, did that play into uh, the faster than light travel method? Uh, it seems like something maybe Dave came up with and John made. The, the faster than light is uh, purely Dave. Dave, um, the plan Dave gave me was very thorough. It was, uh, for the first one, it was, and the second, it was 20,000 words or more. And the whole faster than light system is pure Dave. Um, my contribution to the travel system was to flesh it out a bit. And in particular, I, I came up with um, the limitations to large ships, the heat sinks. Which play, and there are some alien creatures that you've invented, uh, or yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, because I am a biologist. Uh, <laughs> so my again, my, my mind tends to flow down paths connected with biology and chemistry and environmental chemistry, that sort of thing. Uh, it, it's <laughs> it's kind of what I do for fun, you know. <laughs> uh, so there's the have a hobby. <laughs> the way it works is explain the FTL because um, I think it's kind of unique. Uh, you, you know, you it's not like jumping into wormholes or the the usual fare. No, I well I, I'll start. Dave, cut me in if you because it really is Dave's invention. I got to say that. The problem is, if you want to do a story that resembles George Washington's story, you aren't going to be in a universe of Star Trek spacecraft or wormholes. You've got to make travel difficult. Um, you've got to make travel difficult both within the pseudo-Americas, uh, you know, canoes, mules walking and you've also got to somehow make it difficult between the old world and the new uh, 18th century sailing ships it, it wasn't like popping on concord and just flipping from between london and new york uh, so those are the constraints within which dave had to work and he came up with something absolutely unique and uh, as i understand it dave will correct me if i'm wrong uh hg wells comes into this <laughs> Go on, Dave. You take it from there. Well, yeah, this is kind of funny. Um, if you read the time machine and you know that Wells was, his great enthusiasm was bicycles. And you realize that the time machine is a bicycle. You know, it, it's got a lot of bells and whistles on it, literally. But it's a bicycle. You get on it and you pedal yourself into the future. And I thought, huh, you know, that'd work just as well if you were generating a field to keep yourself in what amounts to hyperspace and moving in hyperspace. Uh, it would be hard work. It would not be fast. And, you know, you might, <laughs> you might just disappear the same way, uh, when, when Lord Anson, as he became, uh, took five ships from England 
to the South Seas in order to capture the Spanish, the Manila Galleon. Uh, only one of the ships made it, and that was in 1740. Uh, and it, it's that sort of a world that we're in where travel is not only difficult, it's damn dangerous. But if you disappear, yeah. you, you just disappear. And they came out with an interesting wrinkle, which is it's particularly difficult to move metals through this hyperspace, the continuum. And that really constrains you with what you can carry around. What I came up with was the sort of bubble you're in won't let energy in or out to any degree. Uh, it has to be that way to protect you from the energies of the continuum. So everything you do is generating heat. So you, you've got a perpetual heat buildup. And it, it's the heat buildup that limits your range. You can build big ships with fusion power that presumably could go on forever, more or less. But it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And at some point, you've got to land and shed the heat. And you can't shed it in the continuum, because if you drop the energy bubble around you, the um, continuum will rip you to pieces. Apparently, else you'll just drop back into real space, which might be a bit disconcerting, <laughs> because you could be anywhere in the galaxy. And also, um, which I thought was really cool, was that a lot of the holes aren't airtight because they don't really need to be because you you no, leave a... no, I mean it's, it's a it's a truism that you don't make something that you don't need in a, in a piece of equipment I mean you don't make a car airtight you could but why would you mm -hmm. uh, and because you start because on a planetary surface with... if, you, if, if you were going to drive into Chappaquiddick Creek with your girlfriend in the car you might be better <laughs> off if it were airtight <laughs> Yeah, well, but, but the designer didn't foresee that eventuality. <laughs> um, Man, I can think of some very sick jokes. <laughs> anyway, never mind. Uh, the, 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 the thing is, um, as I say, you don't make a car airtight because it would just add to the cost pointlessly. Now, if you, if you start with a spacecraft that's actually not much bigger than a car, uh, and in particular, you have real problems with the sort of things you can fit to it. If you fit metals, you're uh, fitting something that slows you down with enormous drag. Then um, uh, why bother with a with a hull? You just lift off from the planet, uh, move straight into the continuum with an atmosphere, and you come out within the atmosphere of another planet. Problem solved. Mm -hmm. So... And, and this this is the sort of thing that I came up with, not because I thought, okay, if I do it this way, uh, what will that do to my story? I looked at my storyline and came up with things which would fit the world I wanted. And, you know, you, yes, of course, I'm designing the physics of this hyper-universe, if you will. Yes, I am. I'm writing the book. And this is not because I think this is true. Pretty sure it isn't. But it's what my story will need. Not a plot point, but the background of the whole story will need this. So. Yeah, I, I think this is making a really valid point for anyone who wants to write science fiction. Um, 
there's a tendency to come up with gadgets and then write a story around them. That is really not the way to do it. And you need a story, and then the gadgets have to be in the background. But if you're going to do that, you've got to think carefully how the gadgets fit into the the, the background world. Um, you 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 can't have magic machines and then have a plot. Uh, if if this story wouldn't work at all if you had giant battleships that could roam at hyperspatial speeds like something out of Star Trek. Uh, it, and what they're saying to us all is start with the characters and the story, you create the universe to fit the story, and then the gadgets have got to be logically fit within that universe. Yeah, and uh, I might add that they'll then they'll create problems themselves that will add to your to your story after you um, after they've been generated. Yeah, I mean, if you drive a car, there are certain constraints on you immediately. Like if you hit ice, you'll lose control. Uh, every so often, you have to stop to refuel it. Uh, they're not completely reliable. They have certain problems going faster than certain speeds, that this sort of thing. Um, to get from A to B in a car, it's a very convenient device, but there are always issues. I mean, not least if you live like I do in southern England, the fact that you're going to spend a large part of the time sitting staring at a car in front stopped. <laughs> <laughs> well, something that I learned very early when I, I did a little horse riding, I, I ride a motorcycle. And there's a tendency to think of a horse as being a four-footed and probably rather heavier uh, motorcycle, uh, you know, a one-man ride. Uh, that's not true. Motorcycles don't have minds of their own. Horses have minds of their own. It doesn't mean that he's going to be fighting you. Uh, oh, you know, I suppose he may. But the thing is, the fact you pointed him in a direction does not actually force him to go in that direction. And I learned to ride on a, a horse that had actually been trained as a polo pony. He was a great horse. Uh, but he knew the trail we were on and the fact that there was quite a lot of brush uh, on the hillside between where we were now and um, where the trail went through a switchback. I, he didn't mind brushing through brush, and I'd better not because <laughs> that's what we did. And and it's that sort of thing that you've got to keep in mind when you're getting stuff into the fiction. You, you've got to remember that Everything has side effects. It isn't just the same as what you're used to, what you're inventing, yeah. or shouldn't be. So the the story. Let's get into the story. That you have the group of worlds in the air in this area called the Cutter Stream. Between them and the home worlds of humanity, um, which has the capital of Brasilia, uh, lies a, a kind of de desert zone. The the bite. Um, and the Cutter Stream is not at all happy with decisions that are being made in Brasilia. How does, why might this lead to war? What's, what's the situation that we encounter at the beginning of the book? It, it, like a lot of wars, nobody actually wants it. 
but it happens anyway. Um, the looked at from the point of view of the homeworld, Brasilia, the whole of the Catastream colonies are really a, a best a side issue and at worst a bit of a pain in the neck. Um, they're not economically all that viable, seen from the point of view of the homeworld. So there's a tendency to use them purely for exploitation. Um, they're not colonies that have been planted for any great strategic purpose. They just are there. So there's a tendency to, as was done with the original English Empire colonies, simply treat them as a place to dump the unwanted and uh, as a captive market. Um, no, no, they're not really no, useful for, for raw materials because they're too far away. It's too expensive to move them. And unwanted means younger sons as well as emptying the prisons. Yeah, younger sons, illegitimate sons, like the guy who founded the Smithsonian, for example. <laughs> um, just people who don't fit in. Uh, it's also a useful place where the radicals can all go off and be radical with each other. <laughs> Anyone who doesn't really fit into society. Um, but that doesn't make for a comfortable relationship. There's a certain point in that sort of culture when a society reaches a, a level of self-viability um, that it's going to get fed up with decisions being made somewhere a long way away that don't have its best interests in heart, or indeed its interests at all in heart. It's not that Brasilia has any hostile intentions towards its colonies. It's simply that it, it frankly doesn't care much one way or the other. And there is a... It wasn't as bad in the English colonies as it was in the Spanish, by the way, but there is a tendency of local people who become relatively wealthy, who are big men in their own local colonial communities, to get really hacked off uh, at being considered uh, the equivalent of street sweepers anytime they deal with someone from the home world. And that is pretty much the case. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a, this isn't just colonies, it's a concert. I mean, Dave comes from the, one of the flyover states, I think, in America, and I come from yeah. rural North Cornwall, which in the 60s was like the back end of nowhere. And the sort of assumption, if you go to London to be, that's why I went to London to be educated. I mean, you, London, there wasn't a single university in Cornwall. Um, there was only one in the whole of the West Country. And it didn't take local kids, incidentally. It only took um, upper-middle-class kids from southern England because the local kids were seen as oiks. So, oddly enough, we had to go to London to go to university. And um, when you arrive in London, you find that people start looking for the straw in your hair, you know. <laughs> I'm from Iowa. I, I, you know, as John says, we've got a fair amount of similarity in our backgrounds, even though our backgrounds are quite different. Uh, and so I think that gave Dave and I both an insight into how the colonials would feel at being patronized. I, I mean, you, you probably know, Tony, even today, it's a good, um, when we're having one, English and Americans are having our usual uh, repartee and banter, um, we get the, oh, 
backward old world stuff, and uh, we like to respond with old colonial downbeats. <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's a useful stick. <laughs> Well, one of the people who is rather resentful um, is Alan Allenson, who's who's our hero. Um, what can you tell us about Alan? Well, Alan is, is Dave's character. Dave, uh, so I'm going to hand over to Dave just a second. But I'll say one thing about Alan. Uh, revolutions are not caused by the people at bottom, the bottom of society ever. The classic revolutionary is someone who's capable, very capable, usually pretty well educated, but is barred from really participating at the top of society. Um, if you look at people like Lenin, Lenin wasn't a factory worker. He was a, he was a university graduate, I believe. Suddenly he went to a university. Um, he was a lawyer. I mean, Robespierre was a lawyer. Uh, these, these are classic sort of middle-class, highly competent people who've been blocked by a class system that won't allow mobility. One reason we, they always say we've never had a revolution inside England is that actually we have a class system, not a caste system. We have social mobility. So somebody who's very competent, who comes from below, will find that the old joke is that um, upper-class men let him into their social clubs and upper-class women let him into their beds. And then he finds that um, the only thing he didn't like about the aristocracy was he wasn't one of them. And now he is. Anyway, over to you, Dave. Uh, but that, that's absolutely correct. I did, of course, base Ellen Allenson on George Washington because that was what Jim told me to do. Uh, I mean, that that was my brief uh, turn out a plot based on the life of George Washington, the way we turned out the general series, um, Gemini, that is, uh, based on the life of Belisarius, the Byzantine general. And so I just looked at the situation and came up with someone comparable, rather well, you know, a gentleman, uh, had no particularly uh, important ambitions. He wanted to be a landowner. He wanted to be respected, but that was simply because he wanted to be treated as a gentleman. And the last thing in the world on his mind was a revolution, because he was pretty close to the top locally. Why would he want a a revolution? Yeah, Um, if I could just expand on that, Dave. We don't actually, in England, we don't tend to use the word revolution. We call it the American War of Independence because the same people were in charge afterwards as before, actually, locally, anyway. Uh, that, yeah, that, that is true. We tend to think of it as a revolution because we threw off the shackles of the mother country. But, you know, frankly, yeah. weren't that burdensome. <laughs> well, if they were, it would be more difficult to throw off. <laughs> Well, yeah. The mother country didn't really care. That's a, that's a point to... Uh, uh, in our story, Brasilia's main focus is their rivalry with the other empire, Terra. Yeah. Um, A.K.A. France. A.K.A. France, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, uh, that, that, of course, Britain at the time was involved in a global war with France. And, and that really was occupying 99.9% of the interest. Um, 
In fact, so much so that for Into the Maelstrom, I really had to come up with something that would make war inevitable, because it really wasn't. There was a very even chance that um, even in the American War of Independence that sanity in Britain would just say, well, if they want it, let them have it. And some sort of face-saving gesture would have been made. I mean, the usual one in Britain is that they become a Commonwealth country, which is they have a the monarch as head of state, nominally, uh, and then they entirely run their own business. I mean, that's Canada and Australia and worked like that for a very long time. They're no more, you know, back in the 1930s, they really weren't British colonies any more than the United States was, not in a traditional sense. So I had to come up with something that would recreate uh, a sort of move to a very unlikely war. And, of course, we came up with um, the magic metal. <laughs> yeah, Walt John did that, by the way. And uh, one by Hexium is great stuff. And the funny thing is, it's real. Uh, and no one's discovered it yet, but it, it's sort of like helium, you know. Uh, it was recognized in the uh, corona of the sun before it had ever been found on Earth, although it isn't even terribly uncommon on Earth. Uh, that was John's doing, and it was brilliant. Now, what the, what the reality, that is, the American Revolution, is George III was not especially smart, and he had a group... Uh, you know, his lobby, so to speak, the, the people close to him were an extremely self-focused bunch of country squires, basically, uh, who were intent on maximizing the, um, minimizing the costs to them and their constituents. And that meant dumping everything on the, the colonies. And this um, this was really short-sighted. But they, you know, Lord North was not a very smart man. Lord Butte was uh, <laughs> a very, very unpleasant man, quite apart from his political philosophies. And George the Third was is completely under their ambit as George W. Bush was under Cheney and Ralston. Well, uh, I'm not making a more direct comparison than that, but I it, it was the same sort of situation, whether you like what, say, Cheney and Rumsfeld were doing or like what uh, Butte and Lord North were doing. Uh, the American colonists very definitely did not like <laughs> I, I kind of, you kind of, it's, it's kind of amusing that if instead of a um, Hanoverian twit, we'd had a Tudor, say, <laughs> on the throne, there might have been a different outcome. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was, I mean, I mean, there are economic, ex, I don't want to get too much into, the, you know, but Adam Smith had not written The Wealth of Nations. Um, it came out in, uh, 1776 during the revolution mm. so there was a mercantilist uh philosophy and they were you know dump in dump exports on the on the colonies and don't uh, don't let them make anything to import to us 
But uh, yeah, that, I mean that was um, this, this was the sort of <laughs> it was the people involved in that. I think what they were saying who was driving the whole thing. But you know, the the, the mercantile interference in politics in Britain goes back an awful long way. Certainly in England, um, I, uh, the wars of the, the classic Wars of the Roses. Um, people say it's between Yorkshire and Lancashire. Um, you know, it's the original for the Game of Thrones. Well, it, it, that's not true, actually. It's between the Yorkist branch of the uh, aristocracy and the Lancastrian branch. The headquarters of the Lancaster people were York in northern England. The headquarters of the Yorkists were in London. And, of course, London's the economic powerhouse. And it was... Um, the uh, the queen, whose name escapes me now, I'm talking to, who was French, and she forbade the London merchants to trade with Calais, which effectively shut down Southern England's economy. So the whole of Southern England backed the Yorkists, and they gave huge sums of money to Edward, and with that money he could form a logistic train to take his army north and smash the, the Lancastrians. Which is why the Yorkists won. So, the, do you see what I mean? The, the, this, the, you cross the merchants at your peril. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it should be obvious from all this that John and I both play with history for fun, and mm. that's part of the fun of the Citizen series. Uh, looking at the situation as it was and seeing, oh, that's how this really works, and, and this sort of thing sort of fun uh, gives us a lot of the business of the, the novel series. You know, these are fun books to read. Uh, yeah. if, if you're a person with a, a mind that likes puzzles. <laughs> well, they're certainly fun to write. Well, as the title suggests, we are thrust into the maelstrom of war. Um so we have some key battles that will be fought if we are following a Revolutionary War analogy. Um, is Bunker Hill Oxford then? Well, yeah. Uh, actually, Bunker Hill has already taken place uh, by the time our heroes get involved. Remember, people tend to forget this. A war had broken out in Boston while the Continental Congress was still debating on whether there would be an army or not. And it was only when the New England delegates to the Continental Congress um, heard that there was fighting going on in Boston and the local forces had just had their asses kicked, uh, because that is what Bunker Hill was, remember, um, that they came to the realization that they needed to pick somebody very quickly who could bring the whole country with him. Otherwise, it was going to be Boston, possibly New England, against the British Empire, and they were going to lose. And so they picked a Virginian and threw all their weight behind him. And the fact that George Washington happened to be possibly the only man in the colonies who could have done what he did is more or less by chance. Uh, 
he was not an obvious pick. He was a safe pick, and they could get everybody to agree to him. And they, all New England really wanted, the, the main thing they wanted, was somebody fast. And they happened to get the right man besides. But, you know, <laughs> sometimes it works out. Yeah. Well, as far as the science fiction goes, um, can we talk a little bit about the swamp crossing scene which uh, and the attack uh, in that section of the book? I really, I love that section um, because it is something where the gadgets... A chemist. <laughs> I, I sweated blood over that section to make it work because... Um, Again, it, it, you know, how do you recreate the Battle of Boston in, in quite that way? And I needed, you have to ask yourself, why didn't, if the colonial army was stronger, why didn't it just invade? Um, what, what made, what made the uh, Brazilians think they could sit behind a shield? And the shield they had was this strange chemical swamp. And I, I played around, um, with some microorganisms as to how you could get a, a something resembling a hydrofluoride rain, <laughs> which is very, very nasty. Um, and uh, what it does, the swamp, is it prevents the use of laser weapons. And laser weapons, they use a lot in the, these stories because laser weapons are wonderfully cheap and they don't have much metal in them. So, and they're the... They don't, you don't have to carry ammunition for them. They are perfect colonial weapons. Um, the other thing I had to come around was, well, why didn't the colonials just shell the place? Well, that's easy. I mean, I, I just whipped one of David's ideas, which is the um, the uh, laser the laser cannon in the town, of course, can take the shells out of the air. Um, the only way around that is saturation. You hit them with more shells than they can catch, except, of course, the Colonials can't do that because they don't really have any heavy siege artillery. They don't have the ability to overwhelm their defences. All they've really got are mortars, um, the sort of thing you use tactically, but not strategically. So the, the question was, how can the Colonials strategically besiege what is effect a spaceport when they don't have heavy artillery and the spaceport is essentially unattackable in a, in a direct line and they can't use a laser weapon. Now, the colonials have laser weapons as well, so if it was simply a matter of sticking a laser, a, a laser weapon close into the port and then shooting things landing, that would be fine. Remember these spacecraft, in inverted commas, don't sort of drop down from orbit. They appear in the atmosphere quite low, so your chance of hitting it um, with an over-the-horizon the shot isn't very good. You have to get in close because the laser beam is a direct line of fire weapon. And they can't. I mean, one of the reasons is that they can't set, just set up a laser beam on the ridges above the city because, of course, those ridges are being swept clean by concentrated bursts of laser cannon fire from the Brazilians in the town. They've set up towers, flat towers. I had Berlin in 1945 in mind. Mm. <laughs> um, so... What the, I won't spoil the book. The solution they come up with is something we both Dave and I have used a lot in these stories, is a reversion backwards in time. And not a reversion back to the 20th century, but much earlier than that. But sometimes the solution to a complex problem is very simple. 
in principle. <laughs> well, we also get a, uh, a Battle of New York analogy battle, which is very cool, um, which, of course, involves evacuation. Yeah, and that gives a chance to show Allison's tactical leadership qualities. I, I, I desperately wanted to show his personal qualities as a human being, and that evacuation is what is where you see it. I mean, even some great generals like Napoleon were famous for just abandoning armies that were in a mess, and Washington was not the sort of man who abandons his army. Um, he will do his damnedest to get his men out, or he will go down with them, because that's the sort of man he is. Um, and, and there are generals like that in history as well. Uh, that really was the real George Washington. Uh, that from his very first military contact uh, with the French and Indians um, in, you know, the hinterlands, uh, he got his troops, because of ignorance, got them into a hole and then did whatever he needed to do to get them out. And it made his home government and the British government furious. And he didn't care. He got his men home. And, yeah. uh, you know, that, that really is the man who we're trying to describe in this. Yeah. yeah. He also started the Seven Years' War by doing that. <laughs> well, yes, but he didn't care. Yeah. He had been put in charge. We're talking about Fort Necessity, I, I guess. And the... Yes. Yes, exactly. Well, uh, to be to be fair, I think the war would have happened anyway. He triggered it. He didn't cause it. I, I, uh, yes, of I'm course. I'm going to some other reason was... for ripping seven bells out of each other. They've never needed much excuse through history. Do we get a? I, I, I assume we're going to. Um, we we get a battle of Trenton, um, the big uh, the Hessian attack. Um, in fact, I know we do, Thanks. but. What's that? Yeah. yeah. Why would you think that? <laughs> because it might make a rousing finale for um, the middle book in a series. <laughs> yeah. And, and I actually draw backwards on my Cornish heritage for that one. Yes. How? Yes. The... Uh, German, in inverted commas, mercenary troops used by Brasilia, have some strange affinities with my home ta um, region of Cornwall, which um, oh, the drink Scrumpy to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> it drinks is why yes, Scrumpy is um, cider, but cider means something quite different in America, I understand. But Scrumpy in this country, it, it has about it's about wine strength, and it's made from apples, and you know when it's ready because you toss a dead rat in. <laughs> And when the rat dissolves, you can drink it. <laughs> Actually, they use a leg of pork now because the, um, the hygiene people get a bit upset about throwing rats in. <laughs> so it's still practiced? Get the idea, anyway. <laughs> wow. That's some strong stuff, then. Because of a certain generation may remember Calvados. 
which was uh, is made in Brittany, who of course are the same people as the Cornish. The Cornish aren't actually English; uh, they're Celtic. And uh, Calvados, you could run a jeep on. We got some, we have something like that over here called moonshine. It's very similar. In fact, um, <laughs> I've got a little story I'm working on now where uh, one of my jokes, it's a, it's a sort of English steampunk thing, uh, British Empire thing, and one of my jokes is the introduction of one of the uh, aristocratic British officers to moonshine. Well, I... should mention... Yes? Oh, well... John is uh, doing a novel of his own in the Citizen Universe, by the way. Different part of the universe. But um, there there will be this coming out from Bain in good time. Mm. <laughs> That's David Drake speak for stop messing about and start writing. Uh-huh. So what what how is the series going to progress as is I mean we we need to finish this war. Yes, we do. And we need to start the peace. Uh, both those things are critical. Uh, you know, there are a lot. We This was conceived as a trilogy from the beginning. I haven't written the plot to the third volume yet. Uh, this was conceived as a trilogy from the beginning. And the it will end... Shortly after the war ends, uh, there will not be a book, at least not involving me, that involves President Alan Allenson. Uh, you could do an interesting book there, but I don't want to do it. Uh, but we will end the war, and more important, we will begin the peace. Because in that, even more than keeping things together during the war, uh, Washington's just amazing capacity was shown in the way he set the course for the peace that came afterwards. And it didn't have to be. So, yes, there will be another yeah. book in this series. Cincinnatus. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The, 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 Order of Cincinnati, yes. Um, it's very... I'm a non-vet, and there is a tendency... Everybody knows that non-vets were not treated very well by the country when we got back to the world, and that's true. But, frankly, no soldier comes back particularly beneficial to a world that is particularly beneficial to him. The people who weren't out there not only have his job, but they've been promoted and they're above him if he does get a job back. And they've been making money while he's been doing things that even if he was very good at them are not socially acceptable in a civilian society. And he's probably pretty messed up mentally. And it was no different in the Revolutionary War than it was to my war. And I, if you read Audie Murphy or look at Audie Murphy's life, uh, really, it's always been that way for the returning soldier. 
And Can I jump a- in here, Dave, because I have some very personal experience with this. I'm not a veteran, but my father was. And he was a veteran of World War Two. He was um, a sergeant in the British Light, West Country Light Infantry. The same regiment, incidentally, carried out the Paoli Massacre in the American War of Independence. And uh, his regiment, battalion, his battalion, was decimated three times, twice in a matter of weeks at Anzio. And he he won the military medal. But he was, frankly, wrecked. His career was over. He, He never completed his exams, and he worked out of a fairly ordinary job well below his abilities and he had great trouble making decisions. Um, We now call it post-traumatic stress syndrome and he used to have the most terrible dreams and I I won't upset your audience but but what he did, saw and witnessed is something no human being should be put through. And it's... There wasn't the outrage against World War II veterans that poor Dave had to suffer from Vietnam, they were feted, told they were heroes, and then forgotten. And it's the forgotten bit. Um, I recently found his medal citation. For those, for Americans, the military medal is uh, the second highest you can get, really, in Britain. It was given to non-commissioned officers and privates. And um, it's what you get if you're still alive at the end of it. If you're not, you get a VC. Mm. (laughs) But I found his citation, and what he did the night he officially got that citation under German fire, the famous Spandau Ballet, is something that would have driven most of us completely insane. And I'm not frankly sure that isn't what happened to him. Anyway, I won't carry on in that vein. Uh, By the way... The Audie Murphy story, just you brought it up. I've, I've always been fascinated with that story as well. Um, that's kind of an amazing sort of, and he did not have a good return, although uh, he lived quite a while and, and did some movies. Did a lot of movies. Uh, he uh, died in a plane crash. I mean, he wasn't a suicide. He didn't die of alcoholism. Um Quite a lot of people who had been through what he went through did commit suicide or die of alcoholism. Well, he was just a uh, what is, his memoir, I think, is is it called "To Hell and Back" or something like that. That's correct. His wonderful memoir. I read it a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you remember the the scene there on a a hilltop in Italy, somewhere in Italy. And a couple of the guys are talking about what they're going to do after the war. And another one says, oh, yeah, you're going to go back, and you're going to see your boss, and you're going to say, hire me back. I can throw a grenade farther than any man in this town. I can shoot a man dead at 400 yards. Hire me. And that really sums it up. <laughs> yeah, it really does. So what are, to change tr- tracks a moment, what, what are an American and a Brit doing writing together? How did this uh, <laughs> collaboration come about? <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, 
I wrote the plot outline, you know, back in, I think, the 90s. I can't tell you exactly when, but Jim died in 2006, and it was well before then. And I was doing a lot of work with Eric, and Eric heard, actually heard from Jim what I was working on, and he really, really, really wanted to do the book. Oh, I was fine. I mean, he's a great writer. Um thing is, he then wrote uh, 1632, which was a huge success, and got focused on his own projects. And this, he'd gotten, he'd actually been paid, I think, for his work on the three uh, books in this series. And, uh, but they weren't appearing, and they weren't going to appear, and indeed, from Bain's viewpoint, it was better if he wrote 1632 books. Uh, well, Tony took over and finally started getting a handle on um, a lot of outstanding contracts for a lot of people. And one of the things she did was look at various books that Eric had um was on as to write and probably never would write. And that included the general, that, that included the, this series, which didn't have a name at the time. It was the Washington series. Uh, it, one asked, I said, let's make it the Citizen series, which we did. Um, and she asked me, well, would I mind if she gave it to John Lamsett, who, who is my friend, but he was also Jim Bain's friend, and Jim had been pushing him pretty hard. Um, so um, I said, no, that'd be great. I, I think he'd be fine for it. I, I remember when we were, and we are friends, uh, but in, uh, well, I think, 2007, when we were visiting Leeds Castle, and that was connected with the Fairfaxes, and uh, that, oh, you know that's the that's the Fairfaxes that uh, the same family, of course, was the, uh, the Fairfaxes who become mysteries. Uh, yeah, and they were George Washington's in-laws before the Revolution, right? Exactly. Yeah, uh, they they came from right down the road from where John lives, so he he had a very useful background to. You know, Washington viewed himself as an English gentleman, an English squire. Uh, he he was not an American. He never visited England. He never particularly wanted to. Uh, but he and John Adams both, uh, in their very different ways, thought of themselves as Englishmen. And they were really furious. They were not being treated as an Englishman's do. Um, by the, English gentlemen's do. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, that's sort of the point, isn't it? Who cares about the oiks? Uh, and, you know, Washington was genuinely, I, I think, a, a kindly person, but he was most certainly a gentleman. And, you know, you did not forget it. Well, I'm glad that you both overcame your cultural... <laughs> um. <laughs> 
oddities and uh, pr- produced this wonderful series. I also want to remember to mention John Lamb's had excellent short story set in the Citizen Universe, which is up at Bain.com now. It's called When the Lion Feeds, and it features uh, Hawthorne, who's a really cool character in the in the book that we we didn't discuss, but he's he's excellently drawn. Um, the book is Into the Maelstrom by David Drake and John Lambshead. It's now available at booksellers everywhere. Thank you so much for being with us, Dave and John. My thank pleasure. You. Thank you, Tony. And thank you, Dave, for letting me play in your universe. Oh, John, it's fun to read. It's really fun to read. <laughs> Bye-bye, guys. And now here is another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at it. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives, the Grim Noir, who are dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse, an apocalypse that seems to be accelerating toward a terrible finale. Here is Bronson Pinchot with this portion of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 23 We've been warned about magic since the days of Adam. Wizards from Canaan and Babylon were always there to lead man astray. Why should now be any different? What if what we're seeing in these times is a quickening of mankind, tempting us to stray one last time before the last days? This is nothing new. The serpent has just got himself a fancy new suit. Join with me, brethren, and demand that Washington round up these heathen wizards once and for all. D. W. Griffith, at the first screening of his blockbuster film, The Death of a Nation, 1918. UBF Tempest Lance joined Faye on the observation bubble at the top of the airship. She'd been up here for hours watching the distant angry clouds and now enjoying the orange sunset. This was the first time she'd ever flown and the first time she'd ever been over the ocean. She liked the view, and she didn't really feel like being around the others. For the first time in a very long time, she just wanted to be all alone. Hey, kid, Lance said as he limped over and leaned on the rail next to her. Faye was leaning way forward with her forehead against the cold glass, so it felt more like she was outside flying. Flying. Now that would be a neat magic to have. She wondered if anybody could fly. Hi, Lance. Do you know anyone who can fly? We're in an airship right now. No, silly. I mean, like a magic bird. He thought about it for a moment. Well, I sort of do when I put part of my consciousness inside a bird. 
It's overrated. Lots of flapping. I came to ask you a favor, a real hard favor, and I won't blame you if you say no. She figured she already knew what it would be. Faye might have been young, but she wasn't stupid. The Tempest was going to try and sneak up in the dark on the Tokugawa. If they were spotted, they'd get shot down. There was only one of them who could go over there and find Jane without having to actually make the ship's touch. Get me close enough and I'll get her. Lance nodded thoughtfully. I knew you would. You're a brave girl, but don't tell Francis. It'll scare him to death. And the poor lad's already a little addled, and especially don't tell Dan. She hadn't spoken to Mr. Garrett on the trip. For someone whose power was based on words, he sure seemed to be saving his up. He wants to go get her himself. Yeah. Can't say I rightly blame him, Lance said thoughtfully. You still got your grandpa's ring? Faye pulled it out of her pocket and showed him. It was too big and kept slipping off her fingers, but she'd never lose it. Put it on, Lance said gruffly. She complied. Right hand, I'm making you a knight, not proposing, damn it. Really? She put the ring on her right hand. Yeah, really. He looked at her for a long time. John figured... You were too young and that you hadn't been taught near enough, but I figure you're going to need all the help you can get. John's going to kill me. He cleared his throat. Do you, Sally Fay Vieira, agree to take the oath of the Grim Noir Knight? Sure, she answered. Is that it? Lance rolled his eyes. No, that ain't it. Christ Almighty, where was I? That you will swear before God that you will stay true to that which is right and good, that your magic will be used to protect, never to enslave, that your strength and wisdom will be used to shield the innocent, that you will fight always for liberty, even though it may cost your life, that the society will become your blood and its knights your kin, and that you will heed the wisdom of the elders' counsel. Technically, it seemed like they were violating the heck out of that last one since they'd left Mr. Rawls and Mr. Harkness in San Francisco, but she supposed that the other part about the knights being your family came first and Jane was in danger. Okay. Do you willingly pledge your magic, your knowledge, your resources, and your life to these things? She had plenty of magic, so much that she was starting to think that maybe she had more than anybody else but not nearly so much knowledge and no resources to speak of, but she didn't really mind risking her life. It was actually kind of fun, so it probably balanced out. I do. Lance took his thumb and pressed it against her forehead. He pushed hard, leaving a pink indention in her skin, making a simple design. She felt her power perk up, almost like it was excited, and then the feeling was gone. Sally Faye Vieira. You are now a knight of the Grim Noir Society. On a personal note, don't screw it up. Grandpa's ring shrunk just enough to fit her finger perfectly. Imperium Flagship Tokugawa Maddie was so excited he could barely contain himself. The Kaga, first of the Imperium's super warships, had just maneuvered alongside and the docking had been perfect. Ropes had been launched across and tethered between the two giants 
and the canvas and silk-covered bridge had been rolled across and unfurled. The weathermen were burning power to keep the air perfectly calm as the chairman strolled across. The crew had assembled and stood in perfect formation. They snapped to even tighter as the personal bodyguard walked from the bridge onto the Tokugawa's deck. The soldiers were dressed in black with the traditional red shoulder sash and belt. They formed two lines and at a command lifted their Arisaka rifles as one, creating a roof of bayonets for the chairman to walk under. They stomped their feet in unison. Strength forever! Imperium forever! He could tell that the chairman was eager by how he was walking with a purpose, though, as usual, his face betrayed none of that. The man never seemed to hurry. Everything was always done in the proper time, but even he had to be a little excited to fire up the geotel. The last message they'd received had said that the Shadow Guard sub had recovered the final piece and that they'd used a magic portal just as he and Yutaka had done to send it directly to the chairman. Okubo Tokugawa paused at the end of the ramp and took in the assembled men in a lofty hangar. He breathed in deeply, smelling the recent construction. I like it, he said simply, and the men were happy. The chairman was followed by several men in long black coats, Unit 731 cogs, and they were carrying the pieces of the Tesla device. Behind them came another two hundred men to supplement the Tokugawa's crew, hand-picked from the finest in the Imperium Navy. Maddie barely moved as the chairman stopped right in front of him. Maddie seldom wore an Iron Guard uniform, but this was a special occasion. His chest was covered in medals and commendations, and he'd even kept the stupid little one the AEF had given him, only it was below all the Imperium honors. Is my uniform perfect? I should have ironed it better. Damn it! He couldn't help but be nervous. The Emperor was supposed to be a god, but Maddie had seen him. He was just some pathetic normal, a figurehead. The real leader of the most powerful nation in the world was right here, close enough to smell his breath. The chairman looked over at the healer standing at his side. The blonde had her head down, afraid to look at him. What is this? he asked. A gift. She is a healer captured from the Grim Noir. I thought you could find a use for her. He studied her for a moment, sticking a finger under her chin and lifting her face. She didn't speak Japanese, but she understood what was happening. Yes, she will do. He returned his attention to his iron guard. Maddie, I am sorry for the loss of Yutaka. You worked well together for many years. He was strong, Maddie replied, and his death was avenged. The chairman nodded. Excellent work, my son. Intelligence shows that your operation has inflamed the American public. Their government is in an uproar. There has already been violence against actives. Thank you, chairman. You have shown great initiative. Some doubted your loyalty, but I never did. I saw in you a heart that was pure. You took the life of your own flesh and blood in my service. I am pleased. 
from this point forward, you are to be first amongst the iron guard until you perish or I discover someone stronger. He'd never been so humbled. Maddie dropped to his knees and bowed clear to the floor. This was the greatest moment of his life. Rise, first iron guard. We have much work to do. Maddie rose quickly. Keep our heading toward Ido. The Kaga will accompany us. The chairman turned to one of the cogs. Maddie recognized the little man as the 731 officer who had given him his first kanji. Shiro, take your men and prepare the device. I want it ready to fire immediately. I do not wish to step foot on the soil of my home until I can do so. As the conqueror of the world, is that understood? His initial thoughts had been right. The chairman had been waiting for this since 1908. He would waste no time. The targeting marks that had been carved in America were still there, undiscovered all this time. He checked them himself on one of his early assignments. They were intricate designs carved right into the bedrock beneath a New York subway. The geotel would provoke the power, and it would be drawn toward the Tesla design geometries. Their greatest threat would be crippled in one strike. Every other country in the world would fall right into line or risk having a spy scratch a mark under one of their cities. The war would be over before it had even been declared. It didn't matter where the device itself was located. It was truly a global superweapon. The initial test firing had been from Tesla's lab, but the power had risen up and burned a thousand miles around where Imperium scouts had put the targeting mark in Siberia, if it hadn't been for those damn grimoire, the device would have been in the chairman's hands decades ago. In a shallow, selfish way, Maddie was thankful for those grimoire who'd captured the device. He'd only been ten in 08, and he'd been living in the area that would have been immolated. He would have died along with everybody else and never had the opportunity to become an iron guard. Fate had smiled on him, and since it spared his life by thwarting the chairman then, it was only right for him to help put history right now. The cog bowed and scurried away with the others. The wizards still made Maddie uncomfortable, but they had their uses just like the Iron Guard or even that madman Tesla. Everything was falling into place, all for the chairman's inevitable reign, and Maddie would be at his side until the end. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. An arousing rendition of God Save the Queen and God Bless America played together and backward through a time warp along with the actual feather that Yankee Doodle called macaroni, prepared in a wonderful cream sauce, and served in a victory meal with a helping of rattlesnake nuggets to David Drake, and John Lambshead, authors of End to the Maelstrom. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy storytelling, and keep reaching for the stars. Stars.